I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We're lawyers, mothers, and host of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices about marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. The choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Welcome to another episode of The Nuanced Life. We are here sharing more feedback about birth control. We're just going to keep talking about all things gynecological, and I think it's awesome. Beth is a little less enthused. <laughs> we got this message from Maggie who said, I love the conversation you're having on The Nuanced Life about birth control. And I said, I'm glad you do because I don't. <laughs> <laughs> but here we are. So we're going to do this commemoration. We're going to do birth control and some more commemorations. And then we're going to talk about Halloween and holidays and the community building opportunities that come up around holidays. So stick with us, even if uh, OBGYN is not your thing. <laughs> okay, so Maggie says, I've been thinking about sharing this, but sort of missed the date for a commem- commemoration by a few weeks. Maybe I'll just share. A little over a year ago, my husband got a vasectomy. Deciding that we were done done having children was a big decision for us, as I'm sure it is with most couples. I love my two daughters, and there's a part of me that even now wants to have 11 babies. Choosing permanent birth control meant letting go of a lot of things. The idea of future children, the idea that one of them might be a boy, and how much I really enjoyed pregnancy. I also know that for my husband and for many men, there's something about the idea of a vasectomy that feels emasculating, and I really appreciated him doing this for our family. For me to have an IUD would have cost nearly triple what his procedure cost, and for women, getting your tubes tied is so much more invasive than the procedure is for men. On the one hand, this decision was difficult, and what finally made me feel settled was recognizing two things. As to whether to do something permanent or get an IUD, I compared it to putting my fertility in storage. Apparently, most people who use a storage facility leave their belongings in storage for two to five years and then throw everything away. Getting an IUD would be delaying my decision, but deep down, I knew that my family situation was probably not going to be more conducive to caring for a newborn." Second, on another podcast I love, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, the co-host, Elizabeth Kraft, said one time that you're always going to mourn the last baby. Those words came back to me when we were making this decision. Recognizing that last baby grief was a real thing and it was okay to be sad about the babies that would not be helped me move through to the other side of this decision. This decision has been a surprising relief. When someone says, are you having another? I can just say no. When I want to have sex with my husband, I don't worry or wonder about my fertility or the possibility of a surprise, however pleasant it might be. Finally, and this is the part that I really loved. It feels special to me that my husband's body has been permanently changed for our family, just as having babies has permanently changed my body. Oh, that's a good one. I feel like you're both really going the distance in this aspect of your conversation, and I appreciate all you do. I love that permanent change point, Maggie. So good. That's really good. I I think that the always mourning the last baby is so true. This weekend I was thinking about, I'm like, man, I was holding my friend's little baby. I was like, I will have 11 more babies. But as regular listeners of the Pantsu Politics show know, I ain't ever having a three-year-old again. Um, I do not enjoy that age group. And so that part I'm really done with. I remember knowing when I was done, I remember vividly a friend was talking about a friend of a friend who I believe had had 
a stillbirth. And I I could feel it felt like somebody had listed, lifted a yoke off my shoulder. And I thought, oh, that's an ex- that's a, something I never have to think about again or worry about. I always say like paranoia should li- be listed as an official symptom of pregnancy. And I lost a pregnancy at 20 weeks. So all that, the fear and the about miscarriage and stillborns and all these awful things that pregnant women have to deal with psychologically, not much less physically. When when somebody said that, and I could just feel my my entire spiritual being go, you're done with that. That's not a thing. You're not in that anymore. And it felt like I'd lost like like 50 pounds had been lifted off my shoulder because that is such a stressful part of uh, fertility. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm done. I'm done. I'm never signing up for that again. Because that's what it is. It's it's a complexity of all life. It's not that it's all positive. It's all negative. There's a mix of both. And like thinking through how you feel about cuddling a newborn is one thing. But you also have to think about how you feel about hanging out with a three-year-old. So I um, am going to get a little woo-woo for a second. But my therapist is really good about reminding me that all creative energy is the same. Like it all comes from the same force. It's all the same. And so very often I find that if I have even just an inkling of thinking about a baby, I realize, no, it's just that I want to make something generally. <laughs> like maybe I want to start a business. Maybe I want to write a poem. I just want to make something. And that's where this is coming from because I did not enjoy pregnancy. I have no desire to do any of this again. Love my girls. I'm super excited about them growing up and being my friends. Like, I don't have any of this sense of like, oh, gosh, I can't believe we're not going to have a baby again. I, I don't feel that a tiny bit. But occasionally I think, oh, maybe I should have another baby. And almost every time it's, nope, I should just make something. <laughs> I should go bake a cake. That's right. <laughs> So we also heard from Annie. She said, I'm heading back to work after my second and final maternity leave. See, Annie's in there with us, too. Since I am one of the very few and very lucky Americans to have had 12 weeks paid leave, I am marking this transition with a donation to 9to5, an organization dedicated to improving the lives of working women. I'm hoping to make this a habit for all future milestones in my life, reflect on my own experience, but also remember that so many are not as fortunate as I am. What a beautiful practice. I love this I so much, Annie. I love this, too. I'm going to uh, pick this up and adopt yeah, it in my life. Yeah, it's a great idea. It's such a great idea. We also heard from Sam, who says, After a terribly difficult week of news, I had the honor and privilege to spend my Friday afternoon in what many would consider an inner-city middle school in Boston as the students celebrated the end of Massachusetts STEM Week. MA STEM Week is a statewide initiative with dozens of participating schools in which for one week students do not go to their normal classes and have their normal assignments, but spend all day every day in their science and math classes doing science, technology, engineering, and math-related hands-on experiments with a culminating project at the end. Every student I interacted with was giddy to share their projects and what they learned this week. I've never seen students so excited to share what they learned. They couldn't wait to tell me about the sheep hearts and brains they dissected, the (laughs) DNA they extracted from their own cheek swabs, the lunar colonies they designed, and the kinetic and potential energy-themed games they made. I even won a beaded bracelet in a marble run game made by the world's cutest seventh grade boy. I also embarrassed myself greatly by not being able to stitch up a chicken thigh. I was about to (laughs) walk away from a table of eighth graders I was speaking to to speak with another when one boy proclaimed, wait, I haven't told you what I learned about neurons yet. The smile didn't (laughs) leave my face all after Afternoon. This is to commemorate the bipartisan politicians pushing this initiative, Representative Joe Kennedy and Governor Charlie Baker. 
partnership with MIT, who helps design the curriculums, and the company I work for, who helps fund these activities. This is also to commemorate how many diverse future scientists we now have in the making. Several students told me they didn't know they liked science before this week. I Mm. also want to commemorate that I was once again reminded why I'm so passionate about STEM classes and initiatives in all types of schools. I distinctly remember the lab in AP Chemistry that made me start to seriously consider studying chemistry in college. I also remember all the mentors I had along the way who helped me get to where I am now, a chemist at a pharmaceutical company. I was filled with hope and joy going into my weekend, and I hope your listeners can feel some of that too. Oh, I love that so much. Jane, my um, seven-year-old, is about to start an after-school program that goes, I think it's like five or six-week blocks, but each block is about a different type of science. First of all, I want to say how grateful I am to Jane's school for having all of these extracurricular activities that are limited commitment. So she just finished up this painting class that was just five weeks after school for an hour once a week. It's perfect. It's like I feel like we're getting to expose her to all these different things without, sorry, in my view, the bananas, time, and money that goes into a whole lot of committed extracurricular programs. There are some that are wonderful, and I'm so glad that they're out there, and I appreciate them, and they're the right choice for some people. For us, it is really nice to let her dabble, because she kind of hasn't settled into, I want to do soccer for the rest of my life, right? She she wants to dabble. So anyway, the first one's about electricity, and reading Sam's message made me so excited for Jane to get into her electricity journey. That's so fun. So we also got a commemoration from Zoe. She says, After four years of working as a paralegal for a man who threatened to fire people every day and three years of law school, I am a lawyer and my boss is a woman. I was afraid of my new boss because as soon as I started at this firm, she was just one of those people whose approval you crave. Outspoken, extremely good at her job, wearer of sassy outfits. I sat down to hear her feedback on my first motion expecting the worst. Instead, I heard an authority figure tell me she thinks I'm smart, will be a great litigator, and that she'll do anything she can can to keep me at the firm. I didn't react at all because I still don't know how. I've been replaying the day I decided to go to law school. My old boss called me into his office to scream at me that he didn't give a shit about the sexual harassment case I was working on and that he didn't believe the plaintiff, but that I was going to talk her into appearing on the Today Show for firm publicity. I diverted her to the bathroom when she arrived and conveyed in the briefest and most professional way I could that she couldn't trust him. I'm not sure she got it, but luckily she's very shy and refused of her own accord. I worked around the clock for a full year on her trial in which ended in a verdict just shy of $20 million. Unfortunately, well-deserved. We're still friends. The man I worked for is a brilliant lawyer and one of the most talented people I've ever met. He wrote an ingenious clothing argument for the client he didn't believe, but I won't forget the day he disappointed me by demanding that I sell her out. I will also never forget the words of my new boss. I didn't know how much I needed to hear them from a female partner. I can't wait to be in a position to give the gift of validation and self-confidence to the many women I will hire in my career. Thank you for thinking about and accepting unconventional commemorations. You can't read them all, but don't feel bad about it. I think the energy in the world is improved just by virtue of you providing this outlet. For the record, I'm not sorry for how long this email is. And in fact, waving hello to all the men who email you and don't even have this thought. (laughs) Zoe, I love that last paragraph. Just for the record. And also, this commemoration really spoke to me, especially the part about what a very big deal it is for a woman in a position of authority to tell a young woman that she is on the right track. Mm-hmm. It's just I can't even put into words how much that matters. 
We have one more commemoration from Diane. I wanted to send in a commemoration. I'm not exactly sure what to call this. It's a commemoration of rest, not from my life in general particularly, but actually from what we have always considered church life. My husband and I were both brought up in the same church tradition. My father is a minister in his church, a church leader. Our mothers were both extremely involved. So it is no surprise that after we were married, my husband and I carried on this tradition. We were well-loved in these traditions, lots of participation in church activities, challenging the church to learn new things, trying to make relationships and keep relationships. We were there when the doors opened and locked the building after service was over. Both of our parents gave us the incredible gift of critical thinking and the ability to not just accept what we were told about church atmosphere, but to find our way for ourselves. Everything was going swimmingly with us carrying on this tradition until about five years ago. My husband told me that he was questioning not only the church tradition both of us knew, but also faith in in general. During this deconstruction, we stayed in the church we attended. My husband grew increasingly miserable, and I wouldn't let us stop going because I loved all the people there. We ended up moving back to Kentucky with his job, where both our families are, and I started my own deconstruction of faith. The transition of moving was harder on our family than we imagined, and we defaulted to our parents' church for safety and comfort. After two years, we ended up leaving our church family's church. Our faith wasn't the only factor in our decision to leave, but it was definitely a huge part. We now found ourselves in a brand new place in life. My husband's faith was pretty much non-existent, and I was, well, I was confused about what to do with my own changing faith. Our kids were confused and angry because we didn't go to the church with grandparents and cousins anymore, and that added stress to an already stressed family dynamic. Our extended families were loving and supportive, but also hurt, and still to this day do not understand our decisions. After lots of long and somewhat tension-filled discussions, we made the decision that our family would just take some time to rest. For one year, we would rest. Rest from any active participation at church, rest from the Bible, rest from commitments at church, just rest from everything. Everything besides church attendance, we took some rest from that too. I'm an extrovert and a people person, so we decided to find a church for us to attend, so I I could make friends, but that place also had to be a place where we could be free from pressure to believe a certain way, commit to activities, or sit in Bible class to discuss scripture. I certainly don't think things things are bad for us, but they needed to be put on the back burner. You see, my husband and I realized that we were we have never had the opportunity to just rest when it came to our commitment to church, God, faith. I had equated my identity at church with what I could give, how hard I studied, who I was teaching, and how often I came, among other things. As we started our rest, my husband just started to feel more peace and seemed to love it. I wish I could say the same. I was miserable. I didn't know who I was, what I wanted, or what I was doing. It forced me to answer the question, who am I as a Christian if I'm not giving constantly of myself at church or knowing what I believe so I could teach others? I literally didn't have an answer. So for the past year, we've gone to a completely different church tradition with a new way of worshiping, new people, and said more times than I can count. We have walked through the doors, passed the peace to strangers, taken the Eucharist, said some liturgy, and went home. At first, it felt like being choked. I felt more restricted and less free, and I'm happy to say that now, after just shy of a year, I'm starting to feel more freedom. I have new friends, and I love passing some peace. Next month will be our end of the year arrest. I'm not going to lie. I still don't have a great answer to the who am I outside of my participation in church question, but I can tell you this. Rest is a must. I've never been more uncomfortable in church than have to tell someone no when I'm asked to teach Bible classes or be a part of a ministry that seems super awesome. For me, that is so unnatural and it makes me insecure, but I think that's exactly what I need to say. The church God faith isn't dependent on me to keep it alive. If there is a divine being, and at this point I think there is, he, she, it just is, and I'm loved and accepted because I am me, not because I how right I am about my beliefs or how much of a servant I am to the cause of Christ or what church I go to. Attendance, service, and belief comes from truly being free to do or to believe or not. I'm not sure I had ever actually experienced freedom in that way. I guess it feels good to actually officially say this and not be afraid of how those in my past or present will receive it or judge it. Thanks for reading and keep on talking, ladies. I love the nuanced discussions and I love listening. That is awesome. Full disclosure, Diane goes to my church. (laughs) And I was so happy to receive this email. The funny part is I didn't see who it was from. And so I started reading it and thought, this person should be friends with Diane. They would have so much in common. And then I realized that it was, in fact, Diane. Um, It's been so powerful to watch. And I've learned so much from her and her family 
to come because as my my um, church background also taught me very similar lessons. You probably heard me getting a little choked up reading it. And I think those periods of rest when we can't default to our old habits and really have to examine what's motivating and what our values are are so incredibly powerful. I also think that church is such a good place to work out things like this. Mm-hmm. I, one thing I really love about my church is that there there is always something going on, and that something is always giant. Like, it's always a huge goal for the size of our congregation, every mm-hmm. single thing we do. And what's really nice is that you don't see the same 10 people doing it every time. Oh, that's nice. You really see, like, different people coming in from everything from, like, setting up the tables and chairs to sort of planning the events. Like, there, I mean, there's a core group of people at the center of lots of things or who you can always count on to show up. But there really are lots of hands kind of rotating those responsibilities. And I think that's important. Like, I think families should be able to get a break and not create every single event, but participate sometimes. You know, lead sometimes, help sometimes. Be passive sometimes Mm -hmm. because all of those experiences are important. And honestly, any place where you can work out that all those options are available to you, you are learning how to be a good citizen and a good parent and like that you are that you're allowed to both give and receive is a huge, powerful message. Yeah. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. You wanted to give us an update on your bruxism, which I know everyone is excited yes. for. For longtime <laughs> listeners, um, you'll remember the bruxism beat because I was grinding my teeth, <laughs> clenching, clenching my teeth. And it was awful. So I did a bunch of things. I did some lavender oil. I did um, my legs at the wall, and it got a lot better. Well, then in September, I decided I'm going to see. I don't feel exhausted during the day. So I'm going to scale back a little bit of my sleep and see what happens. I'm just going to. Not sleep as much because I was listening to Laura Vanderkam. She talks about how much she sleeps, and I thought, maybe I could gain some additional hours. Okay. That was a bad idea. I realized, like, in the month of September, I was sleeping six to seven hours where I usually sleep eight, and I'm just going to be real, sometimes nine. And it was awful. My clenching got so bad. I was waking up. I felt like my forehead was in a vice in my jaws, and I just didn't really link it to the sleep. I don't even know why I decided— why it was related. I think I just slept a really long time one night, not meaning to. And I felt so much more relaxed the next day. Like I woke up and I felt, I just felt better. And I just realized like exhaustion doesn't always feel like you're nodding off in the middle of a conference or whatever, you know, like exhaustion can present in different ways in our individual bodies. And for me, the clenching is one way. I think it's my body's way of telling me like, you need to sleep more. I have, cause I have a lot of pressure and a lot of stress, and I think I process and relax from it, and my cortisol levels go down, and I just have to have that sleep time to decompress. It's really, really important for me. And then my friend posted, 
Erin Wathen, friend of the pod, she's been on Pain to Politics, that she has really bad uh, TMI and that she realized um, that a purse was contributing to it. So she had scaled back. She thought the purse might be hurting. So she got down to basically like a little cell phone holder with a strap, but the strap broke. So she went back to her purse just until she got a new thing. And her TMI immediately got worse. So she was saying that a purse can really contribute to it too. And I thought that was interesting information. I should, we should pass along for people, you know, also concerned with the bruxism beat and are looking to maybe what might be contributing. So try sleep and a purse, y'all. I thought that's the update in the bruxism beat. What's TMI? Like, uh, no, TMI is too much. <laughs> is it TMI TMJ? Is, too much is that what you mean? TMJ. <laughs> I thought there you... was like this whole other world of mouth no. issue that I didn't know no. about. Okay. That's hilarious. <laughs> oh, funny. Okay. <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, I think you're so right about how fatigue takes so many forms. Yeah. And also that little things like a purse can make a huge difference. Like I tell my yoga students stuff like that all the time. Just pay attention to what's going on because the things that you do over and over and over again are usually the ones that are harming us. Yeah. If we make a tiny little shift in our habits, it can make a huge difference. Totally. Well, next up, we are going to talk about Halloween because this episode is releasing on Halloween Day. And we're going to talk about just holidays in general and why they are important to our communities. Have y'all heard? We've written a book. It's called I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening. And it is coming out in February 2019. We've learned a lot about publishing over the last few months. And the first thing we learned is that pre-sales are incredibly important to the success of your book. Pre-sales tell booksellers which books to buy, which books people are talking about. It also predicts who websites like Amazon and Barnes & Noble will show the book to. So we've heard from so many of you that you're excited about the book and want to help. And with the book, pre-ordering is definitely that way. We've included a pre-order link in the show notes, and you can rest assured you won't be charged until the book is shipped in February. On Amazon, you're guaranteed the lowest pre-order price upon shipment. So pre-order, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening today. So Beth and I are both big fans of Halloween. Love Halloween. I love Halloween. I love costumes. I like candy. Can I just say something about Halloween candy real fast? Yes, please. You can say all the things about Halloween candy. Several years ago, um, first of all, all Halloween candy should be chocolate. That's the first thing. Um, I don't know why we pass out anything. One time, I have a neighbor who gives out full-size candy, and my children got Skittles. And I was like, who raised you? Go back and get something better. And I literally made them go and exchange it for, like, chocolate. I'm not sorry. Don't at me. Um, The thing about Halloween candy is – and just – this is probably true of candy, but in general, but I just feel like it's super relevant at, candy, at Halloween. It's like, you know, like I did a Whole30 and I try to eat much healthier. And there were so many things that like I just kind of abandoned. Like I don't really care if I eat a Chips Ahoy cookie ever again. Like there's a lot of like sweet things that homemade versions are better and, you know, or like just home, like local bakeries, cookies are better. You like you want to eat homemade cakes and cookies and pies. But man, there's just no good substitute for a Kit Kat. That's just all I'm saying. A Kit Kat, a Snickers, peanut M&M's, that's just chocolate candy is chocolate candy. You can't really fake it or make your own. I don't care what, I don't care what paleo recipe you pass on to me. Like you just got to eat a Kit Kat sometimes. And that is another reason why I love Halloween. Or a Reese's peanut butter cup. Yeah. And all the ratios are better in the Halloween size versions. The chocolate to peanut butter, chocolate to wafer ratios are so much stronger in the Halloween candy. 
I have lots of strong opinions on this. I know everyone's surprised. I believe that it was our very first podcast, maybe, where we talked about Halloween candy and Sarah explained her strong feelings and surprising no one, I don't have strong feelings about Halloween candy. You don't even have a favorite? Um, Sure. Yeah. I mean, I want all the M&Ms. Okay. And second, I would like all the Snickers bars. Okay. But I like a nerd, a box of nerds. I can do that. Beth. Um, oh. I can do some Starburst. Like, okay, I'm I will good. eat an orange Starburst or an orange Skittle. I will eat that, and I will be I mean, happy. Come on. But only the orange ones. Here's what I like about Halloween. There is no pressure whatsoever to make it mean anything. Yeah. You just get to have a good time. Yeah. You get to be silly. You get to run around and get the candy. You get to see all your people, and you don't have to add any kind of lesson mm. or, um, it, you know, and if you have like an off Halloween, no big deal. You'll have another one next year. I just feel like Halloween takes some burden off and it's nice. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I have some people that I supposedly share DNA with who don't like Halloween. I do not understand said people. I mean, I get that some people don't like scary stuff, but I just feel like I live in a world, I live in a universe in which Halloween is not scary. I don't really, I think that's very easy to do. Um, Some people don't like costumes. I really struggle with those people because I love costumes. Who doesn't want to shed their identity and have fun? I don't get it, but whatever. Um, I also think that it is, there's just not a lot of things in which kids and adults can sort of equally participate and have fun. And I think Halloween is one of those things. Like, I always think about this with vacations. Like, I think Disney World is so popular because we all grew up with Disney movies. And so it is a sh- it is truly a shared experience. It's not where you're just dragging your butt along to something your kids want to do that you have no interest in. Um, that's how I feel about Halloween. Like, it's a truly shared experience between kids and adults. And that's why it's so fun as well. Well, I think that's the thing, exactly what you were saying. Like, if you want to do haunted houses, do it. If you want to do a pumpkin patch, great. Mm-hmm. But it can just be whatever it is for you. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like Halloween is one of the few things where we set aside all kinds of weird expectations. I don't care if a kid comes to my door with a Kroger bag or the most phenomenally coordinated candy collecting device with their costume. I'm happy to just put the candy in. Either way, I don't care what your costume looks like. If you want to go scary, do it. Mm-hmm. If you want to be like a Christmas elf, I'm I'm pumped. Let's let's go. I just feel like Halloween makes room for everybody, and we don't have we have so few things that just make room for everybody. I agree. I agree. I also think that I have some strong feelings as well about the Kroger bag situation. I don't know why everybody feels like there needs to be rules for Halloween and trick-or-treating. I don't understand the animosity towards teenagers trick-or-treating because I feel like in every conversation we want teenagers to chill out and not try to be grown up so as fast as they are and, you know, you don't have to be grown up, you don't have to be grown up. And then when they try to do something more geared towards young kids, everybody's in their face being, you're grown up, you don't get to trick-or-treat. I don't understand that instinct. Let the teenagers trick-or-treat. I agree. Like, let's be thankful that that's what the teenagers want to do. I have one little mom of young children add-on, which is just be nice while you're out. And recognize that there are children much smaller than you engaged Mm -hmm. in this process. If someone has left a big candy bowl out to walk their young children around, 
don't, don't take dump it the off. whole candy bowl in your thing at the expense of the toddlers. Like, again, just teenagers, I want you to embrace the spirit of making room on Halloween. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I'm, I am happy to give you some candy and high five you with your awesome costume. Go out and enjoy your neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And it's such a great equalizer because everybody's all out. And I in, in Paducah, everybody goes to all the different neighborhoods. So it's a it's a very diverse population, which I enjoy. So uh, my pastor posted um, this blog post called The Theology of Halloween. And not to make Halloween mean something that it doesn't mean, but I think it encapsulates a lot of what we're talking about. So I'm going to read part of it. It says, at its best, Halloween is above all a magical, playful night of community building and neighborhood making. From this point of view, we might even call it a sacramental glimpse, if only for one night of how the world is supposed to be. Homes decked out in mischievous fun, front doors thrown wide open to visitors of all ages, a spirit of wit and excitement in the air, and simple, sweet gifts distributed to children, all children, not just our children, Mm. dressed up as heroes and villains alike. It's easy to grumble about all that sugar, marauding teenagers, a waste of time, and so forth. But think of it. When else do we intentionally spend this kind of time together as a community? When else do we do something as a neighborhood that's this intergenerational, this open to all, this playful, witty, and plain old fun? When else do our front doors swing open to so many strangers? And when else are so many gifts given out? Gifts often given by strangers to strangers just for the sake of delight. And there's an even deeper side to all of this too. In many neighborhoods, lines of social division, segregated lines of race and class, for example, are often crossed on Halloween night. Mm -hmm. In such moments, Halloween can become an all too brief time of sharing experiences and resources, catching sight of a true commonwealth, too often obscured from view on the other 364 nights of the year. And what's more, there's now some intriguing social science showing a strong correlation between a community's health and the extent to which it celebrates Halloween. Oh, I love that. So here's my question for you, Sarah, especially because you are a community leader. Can we scale Halloween like, are there ways for us to bring this kind of attitude to other places? And what what do you think we might work toward in that regard? Like, I would love to see something like Valentine's Day, which is supposedly about love, right, to become something more like Halloween, where there's this freedom of spirit and community around it. I mean, I feel like we do that in Paducah. It usually revolves around meat and or beer, So we have a barbecue festival that is a very much cross-culture, cross-generational, diverse population of people out there because pulled pork is delicious, and that is the uniting principle. Uh, We also have Oktoberfest. Now, that's more adult. That is not intergenerational. Please don't bring your kids to Oktoberfest. Um, But I do like the idea of taking other national holidays. Listen, I'm all in for... Australia, did you read the article about Australia and they have mandatory voting and then they have like big community events and barbecues around voting? I think that's amazing. Yes, I would love that. Why are we even hesitating to move forward on mandatory voting and democracy sausages? I do not know. Um, But I do think that there are, you know, festivals in particular, I think, present these opportunities for us. Food is, food is is a uniter for sure. So I think any kind of, and I, I mean, depending on your community, the food that will unite you. Although I would like to encourage everybody to give pulled pork a chance, um, are is a good way to 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 work towards that goal. 
It's just tricky because festivals are like also a good place to drop a hundred dollars in cash yeah. in two seconds. But listen, so, those people in the neighborhoods are dropping that kind of cash for that candy. I can tell you that much. Well, it's true. It's true. But I feel like there's something about Halloween that's a little bit more just come with what you have, you know, and it's okay. And and I don't know. I would just love to see more of this because I do feel like I and mean, we talk about ritual and celebration and commemoration all the time on this show. And I think holidays have such an opportunity to give us more of that in our communities if we will embrace it. Mm-hmm. Well, we always like to end with some inspiration. And so I found something from The Kitchen and Bramley has written about the soul of Halloween. The entire article is fabulous and I encourage you to read all of it. But I pulled out some parts that I thought were particularly inspiring as it relates to Halloween. It's the one night of the year when complete strangers come to our homes asking to be fed and we deliver, even if it is usually in bite-sized morsels of factory-made chocolate. That exchange feeds the soul even more than the body, and right at the time of year when we otherwise close up our homes, shut out the cold world, and turn inward. Long before Game of Thrones, Halloween was there to remind us that winter is coming. (laughs) In a world before a global food network, factory canning, and deep freezers, once the harvest was in, scarcity haunted the earth until spring planting, which explains in part how we find Halloween's Celtic roots in Samhain, an occasion of stock-taking and in-gathering or reorganizing communities for the winter months, says historian Nicholas Rogers in Halloween from Pagan Ritual to Party Night. Like many autumn holidays, holidays. Halloween hangs at that crossroads of plenty and want, of loss and remembrance. It's a place where ghosts and food fraternize as we find ourselves simultaneously contemplating the seasonal death of the earth and the lives of our ancestors who have passed before us. Think Chusiak in Korea or Day of the Dead in Mexico. Or remember that this hallowed eve ushers in a trilogy that also includes All Saints Day and All Souls Day. Any cultural anthropologist will tell you that liminal spaces like doorways are filled with symbolism and alive with the possibility of transformation. They are gateways between inside and outside, us and them, family and stranger, places where opposites meet. Just like Halloween itself, which tradition says is the night when the veil between the dead and the living falls. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Nuanced Life. We will be back in your ears on Friday over at Paint Soup Politics. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Nuanced Life is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. The Nuanced Life is listener supported. For $5 a month, you'll receive an extra episode of The Nuanced Life at patreon.com slash The Nuanced Life. You can connect with us on our website, thenuancelife.com, and follow us on Instagram.